good news is that people are recognizing the true cost of single car ownership. And the statistics that I show in my presentations is a, a two-car family with a typical cost at AAA tells us of about $8,700 per year. So you multiply that times two cars and you divide it by 365 days of the year and it adds up to about $50 a day. And that is a number that just shocks people when they realize, you know, you see the ads for your your car in the paper and it says just, you know, $199 a month for that shiny new car, but you get it home and you get the insurance paid and you pay for maintenance and tires and depreciation and all these different costs, not even including parking, that 8700 number. So uh, it's a big cost and it's a big burden on, on lots of households, you know, not just the millennial hipsters who are moving into downtowns who are managing to do without cars, but really people everywhere. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable businesses and communities. This is Kate Meese, Executive Director of the Local Government Commission and host for our regular monthly series on smart growth and livable communities, where we discuss ways we can create equitable communities that provide better housing, transportation, and economic opportunities for all residents. Today, as our guest, we are pleased to have Peter Katz. Peter Katz has been a leader in advancing innovative approaches to community planning for more than two decades. He played a catalytic role in launching the new urbanism by writing a seminal book, The New Urbanism, toward an architecture of community and serving as the founding executive director of the Congress for New Urbanism. He continues to help public agencies and private sector clients address emerging issues with state-of-the-art planning practices. Peter, thank you for coming on the podcast today. Well, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. So, Peter, you've worked as a planner in three different parts of the United States. So you've worked in Southern California, Florida, and Northern Virginia near Washington, D.C. You've also researched over 20 projects in your book, and you've consulted on development projects in the U.S. and as far away as Bali. So given all that, what have you learned in your work that makes a great place? I've learned a few things, Kate. The first big concept that I picked up as a new urbanist decades ago was the idea of planning in the form of neighborhoods, places that are finite, walkable, diverse in terms of income, building type, and so on, instead of the single-use places that we see in the suburbs, places we call shopping centers, office parks, apartment complexes, housing subdivisions. Those are all single-use places where you need a car to move from one pod to another. And usually the distances are pretty great. So neighborhoods, um, you know, it's a term that we we have a fondness for. It, it has a nice feel and sound to it, but it really means something specific to urban designers. Later on, I came to appreciate that there was a powerful connection between transportation and place Planners speak often about this, but they usually, um, it's really just sort of a checklist conversation. They don't really seem to understand the concept deeply. Looking at land use on its own without considering transportation would be a little bit like studying a, a human body with a heart stopped and the circulatory system drained. You'd be staring at a lifeless corpse and be missing a lot about how the body was really supposed to function. That kind of study is easier for an analyst than actually dealing with a live person who's moving around, eating, pooping, making demands, arguing, and so on. But this notion of the, the relationship between transportation and land use is hugely dynamic, and it's something that I'm uh, currently working on very, very deeply, and we'll probably talk about it more in the next few minutes. The third piece is this notion of people shaping their own community over time. And uh, the new urbanists talk a lot about charrettes, 
a method of uh, a very intensive design workshop over four or five days or a week to design a whole new set of neighborhoods. Sometimes older communities use the charrette process to renew themselves. But a great physical structure and transportation system only gets you so far. At a certain point, you really need to think about the, the life of the people who occupy it in terms of the values and priorities. So for example, a lot of people visit the city of Copenhagen every year, which is known worldwide for their incredible bicycle infrastructure. They're separated uh, bikeways along the, the busy streets that make cyclists feel safe. Well, that didn't just happen. In the 1960s and 70s, there were actually huge public demonstrations all over Copenhagen. People were, were alarmed at the changes they saw of freeways and big roads coming into the center of town, parking garages. The, you know, the automobile was invading, and the Danes had for years really embraced cycling. And so they pushed back, and they pushed back strongly. And uh, members of parliament, members of local government listened and over the years, they've made changes. And so today, it's really a bicyclist paradise. But again, that was, that was the people speaking. Same basic bones. And I remember visiting years ago when it had slipped pretty far towards a, an automobile place. And it wasn't a very distinguished city. But more recently, I've been back on my bike. And it, it's absolutely amazing. So you're bringing up all these key elements from active transportation and neighborhoods that have a unique setting and really meet the demands of the people that live in them and have have a character. Those are all key elements of the smart growth movement. And you've really been at the forefront of that movement. You were instrumental in helping author the local government commission's Awani principles for resource efficient communities. As I mentioned in your bio, you also launched the Congress for New Urbanism and helped found the Form-Based Code Institute. So given your involvement in the field over almost three decades, what progress have you seen and where are there challenges that you may not have anticipated three decades ago or that have emerged in the time since? Well, unfortunately, the progress has been a little disappointing. It falls short of where I would have expected it to have gotten given the incredible successes we had in the early days. I remember in, in 1995, coming off the publication of my book, Newsweek wrote an amazing article called Bye Bye Suburban Dream. It was a cover story, 15 pages. Bank of America published a report criticizing sprawl development and basically saying that the state's economy was threatened by that. And the culprit was massive overbuilding. And that report touched off a very robust debate on all sides of the issue. And, uh, you know, new urbanism and smart growth had a, a really great day in the sun early on. And that was well before the Tea Party movement existed and, and concerns about the United Nations Agenda 21 and, and all these sort of conspiracy theories. But unfortunately, the problem with new urbanism and smart growth, it's a great set of best practices. Again, form-based codes, a charrette, great urban design, but these practices don't mesh very well with the way local government is run. In local government, what's important is your comp plan. In California, it's called a general plan, your zoning ordinance. There might be a specific plan, again, is the term in California and other places, they call it a small area plan. The documents embraced by the conventional planning profession simply don't mesh well with new urbanism and smart growth practices. And unfortunately, the people that tend to be experts in one usually know very little about the other. There's been very little crossover. And so, um, so sadly, both of these realms, the new urbanism 
Smart growth exists in one silo, conventional planners in another, and very little crossover. And uh, I criticize both sides, really. I think that the new urbanists deserve a, a fair amount of the blame because they haven't taken the time to actually learn how things work in local government. I had a real shock when I went to work as a planner in the early 2000s that even though our techniques were really compelling, they, they had very little standing in terms of the way government operated. So in addition to that, you had some great regional planning work being done by people like Peter Calthorpe and John Friganese in Portland, Salt Lake City, Louisiana. And those were great exercises at the largest scale. But as projects came in for review at the parcel scale, there was little connection between those approvals and what was taking place in the big picture. So um, again, working as a planner, what I realized is that those day-to-day -day approvals of this parcel and that parcel brought in by individual applicants, usually in full compliance with current regulations, were incrementally destroying a lot of great regions around the U.S. It was sort of a death of a thousand cuts, and it's one that continues. So um, it's a situation that makes me sad because I've devoted a huge chunk of my life to pushing new progressive approaches forward. Other promising things, you know, there's software that you and I have discussed that is able to forecast future impacts of development. Again, Peter Calthorpe has just released a product called Urban Footprint as commercial software, but those techniques don't really stand a chance in an environment with fractured regional governance, competition for sales tax and jobs that keep municipalities fighting with each other when they should be collaborating at the regional scale. So that's one of the reasons why I'm looking more and more towards transportation. It's where I think most people actually experience the effects of sprawl. You pull out of your driveway, three streets later, you're on a big arterial or a freeway. Traffic is at a standstill. And I think even lay people begin to realize that something's wrong with the picture, that there's something about the larger system that's broken. So we've seen some disruption in the transportation sphere, things like Uber and Lyft disrupting the world of taxi cabs. But I think there's much more to come. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And in my mind, this is the area that we need to be paying the most attention to, given the potential for it to disrupt not just innovation and the, the transportation sector, but also everything we've done on smart growth. And to the extent that we have seen successes, which we certainly have seen some, despite the fact that we haven't made as much progress as we like, we would have liked to, there's a potential that there is a huge increase in vehicle miles traveled and other negative impacts that can disrupt that work on the land use and planning side as well. So I want to dive in a little bit more on the transportation side because I know you're spending a lot of your time focused on that element in particular. So I want to have you talk a little bit about your new venture, GoTrans, and how you see that addressing the evolving mobility needs and building on your smart growth work over the last few decades? Well, GoTrans, even though it's primarily in the transportation realm, it's really addressing the same goal as with the two prior organizations that I was involved with. It's, it's really about rethinking how we build and rebuild our communities. But in this case, we're using the the vehicle, no pun intended, of transportation to get us there. Or more precisely, what people are starting to call new mobility. And you probably heard a, a fair bit about this term new mobility, which includes four buckets. The one bucket we hear the most about, I call SOV replacement or single owned vehicle replacement, which is not to be confused with another term shared mobility. That means something a little different. And by this, I'm speaking of, of Uber and Lyft, probably the most famous, which are um, a, simply a, a new version of the, of the taxi 
when it comes to individual rides, more convenient, more connected to your smartphone. And then there is also a raft of shared ride vans that come under the heading of microtransit. There's a lot of hype and a lot of expectation for this realm. The holy grail that a lot of people envision is being able to move door to door from their home in a low-density suburban environment to their destination and not needing to own your own car. That's the dream, but I consider it a pretty tall order. The good news is that people are recognizing the true costs of single-car ownership. And the statistic that I show in my presentations is a a two-car family with a typical cost at AAA tells us of about $8,700 per year. So you multiply that times two cars and you divide it by 365 days of the year and it adds up to about $50 a day. And that is a number that just shocks people when they realize, you know, you see the ads for your car in the paper and it says just, you know, $199 a month for that shiny new car, but you get it home and you get the insurance paid and you pay for maintenance and tires and depreciation and all these different costs, not even including parking that 8,700 number. So uh, it's a big cost and it's a big burden on on lots of households, not just the millennial hipsters who are moving into downtowns who are managing to do without cars, but really people everywhere are dealing with it. Autonomous vehicles is part of the conversation about single-owned vehicles because the biggest cost of a taxi is the labor. And uh, companies like Uber and Lyft are sort of dreaming of the days when they can get rid of that labor cost. But a lot of folks see real problems ahead with SOV replacement. You know, we do know that it it does tend to eliminate a parking problem because when that car drops you off, it goes on to get its next passenger. It doesn't need to sit unused for the rest of the day. And by not owning a car, it does tend to reduce trips. But there are other problems surfacing. The second bucket, not enough hype in my opinion, is walk and bike, particularly for first and last mile access to transit and other modes. So, you know, we take for granted the fact that nearly every transit trip starts and ends with walking, something that we humans have been doing for thousands and thousands of years uh, since our species came to be. Bikes, of course, were most recent, invented in their current form maybe 150 years ago. So these are low-tech modes, which are getting rediscovered. Bike share, which took a long time to refine and is still under development, is now the fastest growing transportation mode around the globe. Time Magazine just had an article and they said that 60 different firms in China have put between 16 and 18 million bikes on that nation's streets in shared use in, in just the last few years. And I'll just add, Peter, that there's still a lot of low-hanging fruit when it comes to walking and bicycling. We know that 50% of trips are less than three miles and 72% of them are made by vehicles. So when we talk about the opportunity in this space, it's, it's really huge. No, it's true. And in places like where you are with a great climate, uh, there's no excuse to be in a car unless you're, you know, lugging huge loads. So the third bucket is improved public transit. And there's a lot of disagreement around this point because some data is showing that systems are having a drop in ridership. But where systems have been redesigned to better integrate with walk and bike and the routes have been readjusted to follow uh, usage patterns, what we're finding is ridership is holding steady and in some cases rising. So you hear a lot of talk about mobility hubs, better signage, on-the-go ticketing, interoperability between lines run by different companies. So all of those things are improving the customer experience in something that had previously been the transportation option of last resort for people who typically very poor people who had very few other options. And the fourth bucket, which which really doesn't look like transportation at all, but is the realm where GoTrans, the organization I'm starting, is going to be active, is in the area of consumer and municipal supports. 
for example, something like, for instance, an apartment complex in San Francisco that's paying people $100 towards your monthly Uber bill if you agree not to own a car and keep it parked there. Or the UPS locker that when the uh, delivery person comes to provide, uh, to bring you packages and you're not home, instead of coming back three and four times and clogging up the streets, they can drop it at a locker within a few blocks of your house. And that locker would have accessibility to other companies as well. So it's really understanding how people are putting their lives together. A lot of people complain that urban living is expensive, mostly due to high rents and mortgages. But there are a lot of ways we can trim costs in all the other expenses in life, whether it be insurance, package delivery, a whole bunch of different areas. So um, with the rise of Uber and the capitalization of this huge company, lots and lots of different private sector entrepreneurs are looking at different ways to really advance the lifestyle that that millennials and many baby boomers are now seeking closer in, not so reliant on driving, and more freedom of movement because you get more places by walking and biking. So, Peter, there's clearly a lot of opportunity here, but we've already alluded to some of the disruptive effects as well. And we've seen that disruption take place, whether it's related to taxi or the decline we've seen in transit ridership in communities across the United States. And now research is showing that services like Uber and Lyft could be actually putting more cars on the road. We saw VMT increase. VMT rose in 2015 and 2016 by more than 2%, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it was after a 10-year decline. And this is a higher rate than we've seen in any time in the past quarter of a century. With autonomous vehicles, that trend could be further exacerbated. We've seen researchers estimate that increases in vehicle miles traveled could be anywhere from 6 to 90%, depending on how many of those autonomous vehicles are individually owned versus shared. So how do we address these issues? And are there other unintended consequences that we should be aware of? Well, I agree with you about, I share the same concern with you about the, these unintended consequences and, and uh, recently read an article that I would want to recommend to people listening to this podcast in Forbes magazine entitled, Why Can't Uber Make Money? Uh, written by a person named Len Sherman, contributing writer. And what he, the point he makes in the article is that Uber, which is one of the most heavily capitalized companies in the world, is likely to follow the same trajectory that the taxi industry followed in the early part of the last century, where you know more and more people bought taxis and started picking up passengers. And as they did, the price of the service started to drop dramatically. And uh, at the same time, roads were just hugely clogged up. And um, at a certain point, municipalities had to act the way of controlling the number of taxis was the issuance of medallions. And, uh, you know, they deliberately kept the numbers down, which brought the prices up. Customers complained about the prices, but the system was in place. And what happened when Uber came along is it essentially broke that monopoly that taxis had. But as Uber signs up more and more drivers, the same sorts of things are happening. And people are observing that that new congestion coming a lot from Uber and Lyft and other what are called transportation network companies. So it's a problem. And uh, I think we have to look closely at each mode and each mode's contribution to the, the larger ecology of how people get around. We're seeing a lot of crazy unintended consequences. There's recently been a big trend for transit agencies to get rid of their poorest performing 
transit lines and replace them with a subsidy for Uber or Lyft. So if you live in a place that's uh, not well serviced by transit, government gets rid of that bus line, they save a whole load of money, and then they start subsidizing uh, your Uber ride. The problem with that is that people start making locational decisions based on that subsidy, and then the subsidy goes away. Essentially, what government's doing is creating transit-induced sprawl. And that's very worrisome. So I think that the way we deal with it is we really look carefully, you know, what essentially what we're doing with that transit-induced sprawl is we're band-aiding the problems of the old mobility. You know, one of those problems is that the end of the line never gets good ridership. The, you know, the last station on the streetcar, invariably, you know, you and three other people are the last ones on the streetcar. Well, that doesn't pay the fare box. So I think we really need to step into the next paradigm. So before we run out of time, I, I do want to get to stepping into the, the next paradigm. So one last lightning round question. What's it going to take to see these benefits that we've been talking about around new mobility and to really reach a tipping point of more convenient access to a whole range of smart mobility modes? Well, a lot of people look at Europe, an emerging concept called mobility as a service where all the different modes are strung together with one method of payment, one monthly bill, and much more convenient to move around town. But one of the keys to that mobility as a service is something people call the mobility marketplace. And basically, the, the best analog to that is something called the events marketplace. You know, 40 years ago, if you went to a concert, you had to go to that performance space and buy a ticket four weeks ahead. As we started having uh, music and sports events in more re remote locations, it was harder to buy tickets. And so with the rise of computers and companies like Ticketron, you could start buying event tickets remotely. And soon, uh, event promoters realized they had to carve off a piece of their ticket cost to pay the people supplying those tickets. So right now with transit, the people with a monopoly are transit agencies. They're not that business oriented. Yet at the same time, there are a bunch of companies that are systems integrators and credit card companies that are doing amazing things with apps that technically give you the ability to plan a trip out, hit a button, ticket that trip and have it all charged to your credit card. And you just move freely from one mode to another. The problem is that transit agencies are fighting that generally. They don't want to give up that 8% commission that would be required for those systems integrators. And so a lot of people see that as the big barrier and the thing that we need to overcome in the next few years. And uh, that's something that, that my organization, GoTrans, is going to be very actively engaged in. We're talking to one major credit card company right now and have met with a number of the different systems integrators. And the, the technology that's on the horizon is really exciting. I've seen some beta testing of, of new products. But Again, until the transit agencies accept the idea that they might lose a little commission, now they'll get back much more in the way of ridership, a hopefully off-peak ridership and uh, you know, new markets like, like millennials who are willing to take transit if, if it meets them halfway. Well, we're certainly happy that you're continuing to lead the charge, Peter, and thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And thank you all for listening. We look forward to seeing you next time in Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash infiniteearthradio and Twitter by following at infiniteearthradio.com.